Thank you, thank you. Yo, y'all can take a seat. What up, happy Thursday. We're so glad you decided to join us for church. Uh, my name is Connor. Probably a lot of you don't know who I am, um, but uh, I have the joy of working with. I have the joy. Shh, I have the joy of working with middle school ministry here at Calvary, which is so fun because we meet in this room. And so, um, if I start just like making fart jokes, I apologize. It's like it's a mindset that I'm trying to like pull myself out of for a couple minutes tonight for the next two hours while I preach. Um, ha! Joke. Got him. Uh, not talking for two hours, but. Here's something I've realized. When I say I work with middle school students, um, some of you, your gut reaction was like, whoa, that's so cool. Wow, like middle school, how fun. Well, you know, I don't know, some sort of like angle that way. And then there's like two types of people because that's a response or the other response I get is like, Ugh. you know, like there's like this gut, like, who are you? Like, what is wrong with you, you crazy human? And, um, you know, two types of people in this world. Here's another two types of people, very random, I know, but stay with me. Uh, people who love uh, attention on their birthday and getting sung happy birthday. And then some people who hate it, you know, like those people that are like, oh, that's the worst thing ever. And, but like, what's really cool is right now tonight, uh, there's someone who's here who like works on the middle school team. So they love middle school and they hate getting sung happy birthday, but it's her birthday. So everybody let's sing happy birthday to Megan Talbot. Happy birthday to you. Well done, well done. Um, <laughs> anyways, so yeah, two types of people. I, I think when I work with middle schoolers, there's also this like unique situation when I'm talking with them and it's like they are completely in adulthood and completely in childhood in like the same moment. And there's like this tension, like this, literally this last Sunday, I was, I was teaching right here and I got off the stage and there's a student walks up to me. Hey, Connor, uh, you read this passage that I was actually studying recently. I looked into the Greek and I know that there was a kind of a debate on the translation of this world. What do you think? of this word, what do you think? And I was like, who are you? You know, it's like, what is wrong with you? Like, why are you 12? Oh my gosh, you know, like, you're an adult. This is like, wh like, what's happening? And then like, in the same moment, just a few weeks ago, I was standing on the stage and a kid like threw a shoe at me. And it's like, you know, like middle schoolers, it's like, they're completely adults. And then like, the next moment, they are completely like a a child, you know? And so, so today, this, uh, tonight, oh, wow, I want to say this morning, tonight, as we uh, open up the word of God, we're going to see actually that there's like a, a similar tension that we see with middle school students that are completely adults, completely children. And it's like, which one are you? And obviously with a middle schooler, our hope is that they grow and mature into adults. But the reality is sometimes people don't mature and they get older and maybe they stay kind of like a childlike mindset. Today, we're gonna to be confronted by the word and see that God says there's two types of people. And I wanna be clear that it's not just like a, you're one or the other and there's no hope, but that it's, it's similar to the middle life of a 12-year-old, of a, of a right? There's this tension between, and it's not about where you are, but kind of where are we going? And so uh, tonight, we're gonna to open up uh, and see this dichotomy in Isaiah chapter 66. And so you can open up a Bible uh, and, and open up uh, to Isaiah 66. In the Old Testament, y'all have been working through it at YA for the last, I don't know, while? Yeah. 
how helpful is that, right? So uh, Isaiah, Isaiah 66 is the last chapter that we get to. And so we're just gonna jump right in. We're gonna start to notice many themes that you guys have been exploring over the last few weeks. And uh, let's just jump right in. We often say in middle school that we serve a God who hears us. We serve a God who speaks to us. And so I wanna pause and I wanna pray because uh, the God of the, who created the world actually listens to us. And we believe that here at Calvary. And so we wanna pray because we know that God hears and responds to prayers. And then after that, we're going to look at his word because he speaks to us most clearly through the scriptures. And so join me in prayer. God, uh, you're good. And Lord, I, I know, and you know, that there are many people in this room from such a wide variety of backgrounds. Um, there have been, there, there, there's people in this room, God, who have known you and loved you <laughs> even at this church for their entire life. And there are people in this room who would, are, are shocked that they're even sitting here right now thinking that they are in a church to hear about you. And so, so God, I pray that your spirit would soften their hearts. God, that we all, myself included, would be, have a, a gentleness to your voice, have a gentleness and, and, and ears to hear what you have to say to us tonight as we encounter your word. And so God, as we read your word, what it do, what it does best, and what it um, pierce into our hearts, that it would be living and active in our very own, own bodies, deepest, uh, to the deepest parts of our bones and marrows and hearts and souls and lives. And so God, as we encounter you tonight, would you encourage us? For those who feel convicted, would we be reminded of your grace, Lord? And would we um, uh, just end this night recognizing that you're the king and that it is a joy as we get to humbly praise you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Awesome. All right, Isaiah 66, this is how it begins. This is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things so that they came into being, declares the Lord. Woo! Like this chapter's intense right off the bat. You know, God is, he's speaking to a group of people as you, if you've been here for a while, like they're in exile right now. So they don't have a temple where the Jew, Jewish people worshiped God. And so he's telling them, maybe there, there's kind of this hint here that their hope is not in God, but their hope is in a temple that somehow would contain God. And so God, from the outs, like from the very beginning of this chapter, he is telling them so clearly, like, who are you and who do you think I am? Right? He's like saying, like, uh, the heavens is my throne, the earth, like where you live, where you have your most difficult and painful life circumstances, the relationships that are hard, like everything that we experience. He's like, that is like where I rest my feet. You know, it's like, woo, like there's this power, there is this authority that God is saying about himself from the very, very beginning. We're going to see throughout this chapter that God gets mad at those who are really into like, who, who their hope is in these religious things. And we get a snippet of it here as the, as the text opens. You know, God is saying, how do you think you can contain me? Is your hope in a temple that you can build? Like I'm the creator. You're not gonna create a space for me to rest. I am in control. I have the power, I have the authority. And so we get to pause and now see what does God do with his authority and how can we respond to his power? The, the text continues. He says this. He's going to, get, he's going to um, talk about two different types of people here. And this is the first. He says, these are the ones that I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit, 
and who tremble at my word. And so he's going to get into a second person in a moment, but we notice there's somebody, a group of people who he says, I, I show them favor, right? Like these are the ones who I look on with favor. And he gives them three descriptions. He gives them, he says, they're humble. He says they're contrite in spirit. And he says that they trem- tremble at my words. And so um, there's this interesting relationship between these three. And so let's just sit and think about them for just a moment. Uh, to, to be humble, uh, uh, humility. It was described to me in this way, and like I, this is my, one of my favorite explanations of it. It's not like thinking less of yourself. It's for Connor to be humble. It's not like, oh, you stink. You know, it's not like, man, um, man, you're just, you're never good enough or those types of thoughts. But it's that thinking about myself less often. You guys kind of track it. I'm sure you might've heard that before, but it's this helpful idea of humility. God isn't saying, hey, think that you're, you know, a piece of, piece of crumb, like a, like a little piece of dirt that I don't care about. He says, no, the humble, it's kind of like a mindset. It's an attitude. It's a lens in which we filter the world. Humility is this attitude that we have. The next one, contrite in spirit. It's this emotion. And, and what does contrite mean? Contrite means this. It's a, it's a feeling of remorse, feeling guilt, to be broken down, to be crushed or dejected. Ooh, <laughs> right? Like it is not a, a, an attitude, but it's an emotion that we experience as people in this world. And so pause, who just woke up this morning and said, Lord, <laughs> I want to feel dejected. Come on. <laughs> no, okay. Maybe, maybe, maybe a couple people were like, oh, today I hope I feel crushed. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, that's not good. And so I read this earlier, you know, when I was preparing for the sermon, I was like, contrite, I don't like that definition. What's going on here? And so let's look at Isaiah 57 to get some more context of, does God just want us to feel crushed? Is that like the goal of church? Let's find out because I think some of us feel that way. Isaiah 57, 15, this is what he says. For this is what the high and exalted one says. Once again, God um, using his own authority and power and holiness as like the vehicle in which he speaks. Um, and, and the, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the, the credit? What? What word am I looking for? I don't know. I'll move on. I think you guys are tracking. Here we go. He lives forever. His name is holy. This is what he says. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who's contrite and lowly in spirit. And this is what he does. He lives with the contrite to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Boom. Bible contradicts itself. Let's go. Let's close the Bibles. Never look at it again. Just kidding. Whoa, you guys are like, oh, I can't believe he said that. That's all, you're not supposed to say that at church, right? No, okay, obviously, not a contradiction. But what's going on here? Jesus, or God is saying, I show favor to the contrite, and then at other spots, he's like, I don't want you to be contrite. I, I think what it's saying is that the, 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 um, in, ver, in Isaiah 66, he's speaking about a people who have an attitude and feel an emotion. They've been burdened. They've been broken down. They've been dejected. And, and 57, we see, he says, Yes, I go to those people so that I can revive them, so that I can breathe life into them. It's like he's like giving water to the thirsty or food to the hungry. You're like, God is not a God who just says, I want you to feel dejected and broken. But often that's our response because he's a holy God and we're a sinful people. And so when we experience dejection, when we feel like, oh gosh, I'm crushed, 
because I know I'm not good enough. God says, that's not where I want you to be, but man, that's the first step for me to be able to breathe into you, to be able to give you hope, to be able to revive your spirit and give you peace. And so the first thing is a, a, an attitude, a lens, a filter in which we see the world, humility. The second is an emotion we experience, to be contrite in spirit. And the third thing is an action, right? He says, those, go back to Isaiah 66, uh, verse two, I think. He says, those who tremble at my word, right? He says, those people who hear my words and they know that there's power. Like the people who hear my words and know that there's authority and that when they hear them, it causes them to tremble because they know the authority, the power that God has. It's not just an attitude or an emotion. It's like a response. It is what we do when we hear God speak. And so this is the person that God shows favor to. And we're gonna see in a moment, let's open up to verse three and see what is the other type of person like? This is what he says. But whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a person. And whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood. And whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. They have chosen their own ways and they delight in their abominations. So I will not show favor but I will choose harsh judgment for them and will bring on them what they dread. For when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, no one listened. They did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. <laughs> Dang, right? It's like, oh, not good news for this person. But if you really like go back to verse three, the beginning of that, if we start to look through this list of things that God says that they are doing, it is really concerning if you've been going to church for a while. Because if you've been going to church for a while, you know the context of the Old Testament, which Isaiah was written, that God has actually told his people to sacrifice bulls. He has told his people to offer lambs. He has told his people to do these things. And so we read it, and there's this like, what are you saying? God, they are doing what you told them to do. Like you said, do this, and they did it, and now you're saying you're going to judge them for it. What is happening in this passage? I think at the end of verse three, it, it, we see what God is trying to hint at. You see it right there at the bottom of the screen. They have chosen their own ways. They, they delight, like they take joy in, they seek satisfaction in things that God says are evil, abomination, sin. Later on at verse four, he, God says that they did evil in my sight. So what is going on? It is that God has spoken and no one has listened. Like he has spoken and they are not listening. They did the churchy things, but they didn't actually know God. They did the things that God was like, do this. And they're like, cool, I will check off the box. But God, I don't know who you are. I don't know what your voice sounds like. And I'm not gonna respond to it. I'm not even gonna tremble to it because it doesn't matter. I'm gonna do what is good in my own eyes. They loved the religion, but they did not have satisfaction or joy in the relationship that God offers. So they are a group of people. Isaiah, or God is speaking through Isaiah 66. He says, listen, there are some of you who do church really well, who are like 
really, really proud of yourself for all the good things you get to do, but you don't even know who I am. You love the religion and you don't have a relationship with me. And here's the thing, from the beginning of scripture, this pattern unfolds. Like this is not a new concept that happens in Isaiah 66. From the very, very beginning, we see this type of pattern unfold with God's people. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden, right? God says, hey, uh, he says all these awesome things. Um, like the first, I'm not gonna get into that. I won't get into it. No, okay, I'll, I'll stay on track. I'll stay on track. Genesis 3, 6, right? So he's like, yo, don't eat from the tree. And then there's, there's this serpent, which later we find out is the devil. And he's like, oh, well, like maybe eat from the tree. And then it's like, this is what it says about Eve. Here's the pattern that we have. Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. So this pattern, the very first sin, she sees, she desires, and she says, that is going to be mine. Like God has said one thing, but I desire something else. And so God has defined this as good and this as evil. And Eve said, I don't think so. I get to decide what is good. I get to decide what is evil. I desire that fruit. And so what, I'm, what am I going to do? I'm going to take it. Later on, God in Genesis 3, he punishes the serpent. And I know I'm kind of jumping right into the middle of this, but I think it's important for us as we consider Isaiah 66. And that Genesis 3.15, which is some uh, scholars call it the proto-gospel, like the first hint at the gospel of the, uh, the, the, the saving grace of Jesus that we have. But God punishes the serpent, and this is what he says. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head and you will strike your heel. yes. This passage is specific to Jesus dying on the cross and crushing the head of, uh, of Satan and getting rid of evil, completely conquering it. But it's also um, uh, giving us two lineages. It's, it's kind of like the same two people Isaiah 66 is talking about. He's like, there's two types of people. There's the offspring of God and then there's the offspring of Satan. There's those who follow God. There's those who follow Satan. Tim Mackey, y'all watch the Bible Project? Yeah, woo, it's so good, right? Go listen to the Bible Project, it's great. Um, the, he, he's really smart. I like saying what other smart people say because it makes me sound smart. So this is what Tim Mackey says about this, about 315. This poem, it invites us to see the entire cast of characters in the scriptures as the member of two lines, not based on physical lineage, but moral choice. And so from the beginning, there are two types of people, those who listen to God and tremble at his word and those who say, I'm gonna see something, I'm gonna desire it, and I'm going to decide that that thing is mine. So just like Isaiah, the, the, this pattern, like it continues through scripture. And I'm sure you're like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm picking up with it, but I think this is important. So let's just like look at a couple other famous examples. Now you start to see what is going on. So you might, y'all might've heard of Samson. He had long hair. I grew my hair a long time ago because I thought that was cool and I'd be strong and like it didn't work that well. But Samson, Judges 14, two, this is what it says. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen the Philistine woman. Now get her for me as my wife. I saw, I desired, I take. It's this pattern of sin. David in 2 Samuel 11, two through four, he says this, one evening, David got up from his bed and was walking around on the roof of the palace. From the roof there, he saw a woman bathing. 
The woman was very beautiful. He desired her. So David sent someone to find out about her. Then later on, it says David sent messengers to get her. This is a pattern from Adam and Eve through all of the Jewish people, through David, the king, like the greatest king of Israel or one of the greatest ones. And then Isaiah is talking about it. Here's the thing. Jesus talks about the same exact problem. He gets to the same dichotomy. I think there are many passages where if you look at what Jesus is saying, I can imagine him reading Isaiah 66 in the morning, meditating on it, considering it, pondering it, and then later going and teaching to people. And this is one of the things that he says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23. In Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, "'Not everyone who says to me, "'Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven.'" but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. He's saying here so clearly once again, there's another group of people who are looking at Jesus and they, they, they tell him, didn't we do the churchy things? Didn't I cast out demons in your name, God? Haven't I prophesied in your name? Like I went to church, look at me. Come on, God, me and you. And Jesus says so terrifyingly, he responds, I never knew you. These two types of people, it starts with Adam and Eve. We see it in Isaiah. We see it with Jesus. But it is not some problem that they've dealt with in the Bible and that we're free from today. What I want us to consider is that this is still a problem for you, and this is still a problem for me. And so here is my question that I want us to ponder, that I want us to consider and to think about. I have actually not one question, but a lot. But here's the first two. <laughs> says this, do your religious activities fill you with pride? Do you delight in things that displease God? Here's the thing. Some of you here, and like, <laughs> I'm talking to myself too, because I'm a pastor at a church, right? Like, but some of us here in this room are really good at churchy things. Like, really good at doing the churchy type things. And here is the question that I think God is was speaking to, like here's the thought that I think God is trying to let us into, is that does doing churchy things fill you with pride or humble you to your knees? You know, when, when you go to church, when you read your Bible, when you pray to God, do you finish doing those things feeling like, oh, like pretty good at those things, right? And then all of a sudden you start to see other friends and you're like, they've missed church. Come on, man, don't miss church. Like YA, it's so good. You know, Thursdays, yo, you miss small group. And so those are good things, right? Those are good things to say to your friends. But sometimes it leads in our hearts some sort of desire that we have that, man, that is like, I went to church and you didn't. Like I read the Bible and I knew what it meant and I wrote like a nice soap journal about it. I prayed for my friends because like I'm supposed to pray for my friends. And so you start to feel good. You're like, nice, like me and Jesus, we are like, I'm doing the things. 
I'm doing the churchy things. If they're leading you to pride, I think Jesus is trying to tell us in this moment that something's going wrong here. Here's the second question. Do you delight in the things that displease God? I think some of us, I've done this. I, mean, I, I know I don't need to say this, but all of these things apply to me. And this one, man, do you delight in the things that displease God? Just like Eve, when God's like, hey, don't do this. And she's like, but I saw it. I wanted it and I took it. And this is what happens in our culture. We go, well, yeah, God said this, don't do this. But like, he wants me to be happy. Like God, like wants my joy. I can be fully satisfied in God, right? And so then all of a sudden we start to do the very things. God says, this displeases me. And so we see these things like, and it, 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 I could list off most sins that we fall into. It's as simple as something like when I was 20 years old-ish, I was like on a church leadership team. But then I, if I visited some friends that weren't involved in church and if they were drinking and I wasn't 21, but I was like, eh, like I'm 21 in six months, you know, like, uh, like it kind of counts. And then all of a sudden it's like, but like, you know, if I don't like have a beer, then uh, they'll think I'm a weird Christian. And so like, then I can't evangelize to them. And so then like, this is a good thing God would want me to do. And it's like, what? <laughs> like, you're doing the things that God says don't do. And you're just like doing this like verbal jujitsu all over the place to try to make it sound like something is like, oh, God wants me to do this. <laughs> so this is the first person. The person who, they do churchy things. They're really good at them. They pray for their friends. It fills them with pride. And then they are on the side finding things that they know displease God, but they're saying, no, this is good because God wants me to be happy. He wants me to be satisfied more than anything else. So that is the first situation. The second is this. A group of people, so this is the second group of questions. Do you tremble at God's word? And does your relationship with Jesus humble you? Are you somebody who hears the word of God, reads it, and trembles because you know it has authority in your life to change. The way that you see your family, the way that you understand who you are at the core of your identity and how you act with your family. You know, do you hear God's word and does it drive you into action as you trust in his character and his goodness and his power? Does your relationship with Jesus, does it humble you? Like when you read the word of God, it's not to fill us with ego, but it's to humble us before God's goodness that a God that knows our sin would love us anyways and give us a gift of his word that we get to sit in and read in and that it would restore our souls and our hearts. When you pray for others, is it a prayer of like, oh, I'm gonna pray for them because they need help? Or when you finish praying, are you just caught in awe that, man, how could a God listen to someone like me? Lord, you're so good. Man, when we have a relationship with Jesus rather than just religious good things, we have satisfaction, we have joy, but also it causes us to be humble. It drives in us humility. And so I, I hope that I'm clear when going through these though, that just like the middle school example, right? We talked about, I know it's a silly example, but there's the students who are like completely children. There's the students who are completely adults. And it's like, what moment are they in? We do not know. So this is not just an either or and you're stuck in that side. 
when I, when I talk with students, our hope is growth. Our hope is maturity, right? From the very beginning, we already talked about when we are contrite, when we're broken down, when we're dejected, that's where God meets us. That's where God restores us. That's where God gives us hope. And so like, if you're feeling like in this moment, you're like, oh my gosh, I've like done some churchy things and it kind of makes me feel good and I feel pride and like, oh, I'm living in some sin. I haven't talked to anybody else about it. And I, you're, you're like, oh, I'm just stuck over here. no. <laughs> The whole point, why Isaiah 66 tells us this is there's hope for God's people to be moving from one situation to the other. In the same way that a middle schooler flips back and forth between being a child and adult, in the same way we can flip back and grow between these two types of people. It's not about what category we find ourselves in, but it matters about where we are trending towards. So these are the two types of people. And now we get to verse five. And man, when I teach to middle school, normally I just like to sit on a topic and I had some other like passages I wanted to read, but I was talking to Brian earlier and he was like, he's like, what if we just like let Isaiah speak for itself? And so I'm gonna just keep reading Isaiah and see where does God take us? It's gonna hit some other topics, but it's one logical flow. So verse five, he's gonna jump back to the first type of people. He's going to go back to the people he shows favor towards, the people who tremble at his word. And he's gonna say, this is, their, this is what they get. This is what they receive for trembling at my word. Verse five, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your own people who hate you and exclude you because of my name have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy yet they will be put to shame. Whew, right? So, man, it's like, yes, tremble at the word of God, get God's favor. And then verse five, he's like, yeah, people are gonna hate you. <laughs> That's what we receive for those who tremble at the word of God, your own people who hate you. So here's, here's something to consider. Do you tremble more from God's word or do you tremble more from the words of your family? Do you tremble more from what scriptures clearly teach and encourage us to do, or do you tremble from the power or authority of a boss or a teacher or a friend that has, yes, significance in your life? But who is causing you to tremble? God and his word or people in your life? Your friends, your family, your coworkers, your classmates. Who is causing us to tremble? Because I think what God is saying here is that if you tremble at my word, you don't need to fear other people's words. You actually can expect it. He says this, your own people who hate you, which at first glance, I think it sounds unstable. It sounds frightening. That sounds really insecure. <laughs> you know, it's like you don't want to be evangelizing on the street. <laughs> hey, come follow Jesus. Your own people are going to hate you. It's like, whoa, people are like, yeah, I want that. It's like, no, right? Like you read that and it's like, oh, that makes me feel insecure. Like that's kind of an unstable place to be in this world. But I want us to realize that there's actual security, real affection from God. It's never ending and it's never failing. Do we remember verse one? God is on the throne of heavens and where our problems exist and our worries happen, it's just where his feet rest on. It's a footstool says, how can you contain me? How can you control me? You can't create something for me. I am God. 
And so we tremble at his word because of his authority. We tremble at his word because of his power and because of his security. It's like safety in God. So, because who wants to be hated? Who wants suffering in this world? Nobody, right? Like, no one's like desiring, like, I hope I have a bad day today. It's like, no. And if that is you, I don't know what to say. So, I'm not going to address that, <laughs> right? Like, no one wants that. No one wants, like, oh, I love suffering. Woo, it's just so nice, you know. Oh, it's all punch me in the face. Oh, well, cool. It's like, oh. No. No one wants suffering. No one wants pain. No one wants to be hated. But <laughs> I know this sounds, this is a little pessimistic for a moment, but it, it doesn't really matter how you live in this world. It doesn't really matter what religion you find yourself in or what sort of philosophy you adhere to. You're gonna be hated by somebody and you're gonna have suffering. And so like, it's coming. Like, you, you know, and I'm not just trying to sound like, oh my gosh, the world is over. It's, it's no, it's, this life is hard. It's painful. Sometimes it's difficult. There's tension. No one wants that, but it is a fact it's coming. And in Jesus, we know that suffering and hatred is going to come from the world. But the promise is that God exalts the humble. He gives a new life to those who are contrite and dejected and downcast. And we can trust in his character and in his goodness. So let's continue in verse six as we see actually a new note of this passage. God's justice, a new aspect of his character that we get to wrestle with tonight. Verse six, hear that uproar from the city. Hear that noise from the temple. It's the sound of the Lord repaying his enemies all they deserve, right? It's his justice. And listen, our culture doesn't love this verse. Like our culture, we love, like I always call him hippie, long-haired Jesus. I was thinking that passage, like talking about where he's like, hey, look at the flowers, you know, they don't work hard. Don't be anxious. You know, he's like, oh, like, look at the sparrows. Wow, they don't build barns. Just chill. And we're like, we're like, yes, Jesus talking about anxiety and birds. Like, oh, this is for our generation. You know, like, we love hippie, like, Jesus with long hair and like a flower behind his ear. We're like, yeah, that's, the, that's my Jesus. And so then we get to this verse and it's like, oh, it, that doesn't sound like hippie Jesus to me. You know, it's like, he's telling them. This is pretty crazy, right? He's like, hey, you hear all that commotion? You hear that sound? That's me repaying enemies for the things that they deserve. We don't love to hear about his justice, but we need his justice. Imagine this. Imagine this. Um, silly example, but uh, I work with middle schoolers. So imagine we're at a middle school event and everyone's hanging out. And then I like turn the corner out here and there's just like some eighth graders just like, kicking some sixth grader on the ground. You know, there's like a group of them and they're like, ha ha ha, you nerd. You know, like, I don't know if kids say that, but like all of a sudden, you know, they're just beating up some little kid. Let's just call, let's give him a name, like Zach, you know? So they're just like wailing on Zach. And like, I love Zach. Cause like, I'm a pastor, you know, a middle school kid, sixth grader. Imagine I turn the corner and I'm like, hey, Zach, I love you, bud. Love you, Zach. And then I just leave. <laughs> it's like, what? You know, I should get fired if that happens. Like, please tell somebody if I do that to a kid and they're just like beating him up and I'm like, I just love my buddy Zach. And then I walk away. There's no love in that because we need and we all desire justice. The people who are in control and have power and authority need to show justice. God is the same way. We cannot, we cannot expect a God without justice because he would not be a good God that we trust in, that we have hope in, that shows us true and actual 
love. And you might be thinking, man, Connor, that's just not fair. Like, Connor, that's not fair that bad things and God's punishment is given to people who reject him. First, two, two thoughts. First, I understand, um, but we should be people who tremble at the God's word. And it's just clear. It's true. And we, don't, we shouldn't fall into the pattern of Eve and reframe what God says is clear for our own desires because we want it and we want to take it that way. So it's, it's the word of God. It's true. It's good. And here's the second thing, is that it, the most unfair act in all of human history, like the worst thing to ever happen, like to claim that's unfair, I think is just silly because the most unfair act that has ever happened is Jesus, the God of the universe, dying on the cross and humbling himself before man. And so when we're talking about fairness, and I think if we claim to God, this isn't fair, which I have many times in my life, and we say, God, this isn't fair, I imagine sometimes God is sitting there and going, I know things are not fair. Look at my son Jesus and what he's done for you. Like when we think, man, how could this be fair? God is saying, look at what happened to my son, and I did this for you. We have to have a God of justice. His judgment comes to the wicked, but he offers an extension to all people. He says, come to me. You don't need to do the churchy things. You don't need to just check off the boxes, but know me and turn, and I'll walk with you as you learn to tremble at my word because you're gonna make mistakes, but I'm here by your side. There's a relationship, not just a religion that we have. Um, I I'm, I'm don't have time to read the next um, section of Isaiah. We're going to end in a second by um, reading the last few verses, but here's a quick summary. Uh, Genesis, or oh, Genesis, Isaiah 66, 7 through 11, and really actually a few verses after that. It gets into this really odd analogy that at first read, you're like, what the heck's going on? And so I'll do my best uh, to give the analogy. It probably won't be great because uh, Fun fact, might be surprising, shocking to you. Uh, I haven't had a kid, like I haven't given labor or birth. And so I know, shocking. You're like, what? No, what? Weird. I don't know much about giving birth. My brother's a doctor, so I don't know if something transfers there. Probably not, but like, I don't, I don't know. So I know this. <laughs> labor is painful and bad. <laughs> like, the process of giving birth is not a joyful thing. So I've been told, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's kind of painful. And sometimes it's really long. We had a friend in our small group that I was like, you had labor for how long? Oh my gosh, sorry. So here's the thing. Labor is bad. Baby, oh, right? It's like labor bad, baby good. So <laughs> go read Isaiah 66 and make sure I'm not too crazy. But he starts to talk about this idea um, that <laughs> he says, listen, like I'm not gonna let my people go through the pains of labor and not give them the joy of, of the birth. Amen. And so uh, there's a, it's definitely speaking specifically to Jesus, the hope of the Messiah, but it is also speaking to the hope that we have. There's a lot, I want you to go, I challenge you, I encourage you, go read Isaiah 66. Um, go read Isaiah chapter one. There's all this crazy correlation in there. And then also, if you're taking notes, read Luke 18, nine through 13. I didn't have time to read it, but I think Jesus is clearly meditating on Isaiah 66. Luke 18, nine through 13. So go read those passages. But what he is doing in, in the rest of the chapter as he hits these themes, we've already seen hope and judgment. 
um, humility and pride. He says, I would not let my people suffer without giving them the joy of the baby. Like there's satisfaction. Like I'm faithful to be good. I'm faithful to deliver the things that I need in your life. And so I'm going to read... I don't know where it went on the paper, but I know where it is in my Bible. Isaiah 66, the last few verses. Read it with me as we consider all the things that we have heard. That we can trust in the God who is good. This is what it says. As the new heavens and the new earth that I will make, they endure before me. Once again, God is alluding to his power. They endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and your descendants endure from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another. And church, hear this. Like he's talking from, what, from the first Sabbath of creation to the last. Like I have created time that you very much exist in, I was in control over. And he says, from the beginning of time to the end of time, this is what he says, church, that all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. And they will go out and they will look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms of those that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. They will be loathsome to all mankind. What he says at the end, he says, listen, come to me, my people. Stop just doing the church. Stop just checking off the boxes. Know me and in me, you will be satisfied. He says, all people are gonna bow down before me. And so we have a choice tonight. We have a decision to make that right now we're living in the tension, right? Like right now we're living in like the, the pains of labor as he talks about in seven through 11. He says, sometimes life is hard because we think sin is good. We've like done all these things. And all of a sudden we realize, oh gosh, sin isn't. And man, I want to be satisfied. Man, sometimes life is hard. It's painful. And God says, listen, one day all people will bow down before me and I will give them rest. But until that day, church, we can respond with worshiping him now. And to say that, man, God, life is hard. God, I've done the wrong things. I've read my Bible and it's filled me with pride. But Lord, I repent of that. I trust in your goodness that something was unfair. And it's not that bad things happen to bad people, but that the worst thing happened to you, your very own son on the cross. And in that I have rejoicing. In that I have freedom. In that I have hope. And so church, let's come together tonight to find joy and knowing and loving and being satisfied with God as a relationship, not just some religion of do's and don'ts, but knowing a God who sees us and loves us. Pray with me. Jesus, you are good. And God, we see it in your word. Lord, we see that, that you say you show favor to those who are contrite in spirit. And so God, I pray right now for those in this room who feel dejected, crushed, burdened, guilty, and shamed. God, you say that you will give them peace. And so God, I pray for peace for those who feel those things. God, would we take our shame and guilt and not re recognize or realize that that's where you want us to be, but it is the step to finding joy in you. And so God, would you restore our hearts? I pray that your spirit would move in our souls. God, that you'd give us ears to hear what you have for us as we confess sin, but as we declare that you're on, the, you're on the throne, that Jesus is the king, and we can trust in that and that it's good. 
And so, Lord, we love you, and we pray these things because of what you have done on the cross, that we have a hope in the God who's conquered death itself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, 